You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The Exorcist, which came out in 1973 and was directed by William Friedkin. It stars Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Jason Miller, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Kitty Wynn, Jack McGowan, Barton Heyman, Rudolf Schundler, Gina Petruska, and William O'Malley. The genre would be supernatural horror thriller. What an excellent day for an exorcism. It embarrasses me to say that I did not see this film for the first time until just a few years ago, and it blew me away. I just could not believe how it actually lived up to the hype. I have now probably rewatched it about once a year since then. And here's the thing. I don't believe that it's one of the scariest movies of all time. For one thing, I'm not Catholic. (laughs) Sorry, I know that helps. And the other thing is that, like with Psycho, I'd already encountered so many references and parodies of this movie by the time I got to actually finally see the actual movie. Did you do that, little girl? You mustn't listen to anything she has to say. I'm not listening. You're a liar and a cheat and a child molester. You French kiss your dog in the mouth. Since its initial release almost 50 years ago, this movie just got so huge, it remains the highest-grossing R-rated film adjusted for inflation ever, and by quite a wide mile, too. It has just left such an indelible stamp on pop culture, which is still felt today. The head spinning, the spider walk, the power of Christ compels you, the long outdoor staircase, the projectile green vomit, the foggy night, tubular bells, it's all out there, and has been for decades now. So that by the time you actually watch it on screen for the first time, it just cannot have the same hair-raising shock that you would have felt first seeing this in 1973. But... That does not make it any less impressive from a storytelling perspective or any less impactful a story as far as I'm concerned. Because this is an amazing story told in the most effective way possible. The late, great William Friedkin and the late, great writer William Peter Blatty were just not effing around when it came to telling this unflinching tale of young, innocent Reagan's possession and the literal hell that she and her mother Chris endure as a result. Same face, same voice, everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. 
Everything is presented on screen documentary like and with minimal score, and it's all paced and performed in the most realistic manner possible. For me, what transpires on screen is more horrific than jump scare horror. I'm completely absorbed with the trials that both of these characters must endure, and I cannot help but ache for the mother. I mean, I'm a parent myself, though I'm not sure that matters. And the scenes surrounding these trials, where we watch Chris being given nothing but non-committal advice and counsel from those doctors. case of your daughter in the temporal lobe, it's up here in the lateral part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations, and usually just before a convulsion. A convulsion? The shaking of the bed, that's doubtless due to muscular spasms. Oh, no, 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 that was no spasm. Look, I got on the bed, the whole bed was... Bumping and rising off the floor and shaking the whole thing with me on it. Mrs. McNeil, the problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. I mean, everyone is grasping at straws so that by the time we hear the mere suggestion of this being an actual demonic possession, it almost feels like a relief. You're kind of reminded that, oh, yes, this is a fantastical movie. This isn't real. Well, at least if you're not Catholic. I'll put that qualifier on. Though that is not to diminish in any way the thrilling direction that this story takes for its second half. Most importantly, we are already along for the ride, as we now have people who we are invested in. We want to see them defeat this thing. And of course, that's helped by this excellent cast. And it should go without saying that Ellen Burstyn as Chris and Linda Blair as Reagan just deliver all-time performances. They're both deservedly nominated for Oscars. You can bring Mr. Dennings if you like. Mr. Dennings? Well, you know, it's okay. Well, thank you very much, but why on earth would I want to bring Burke on your birthday? You like him? Yeah, I like him. Don't you like him? Hey, what's going on? What is this? Huh? You're going to marry him, aren't you? And Max von Sydow, in amazing makeup, basically previewing how he would actually look 40 years later. Because he was 44, playing about 30 years older at the time. Very good makeup. Playing the titular exorcist, Father Marin. And also Lee J. Cobb as the concerned police detective, Lieutenant Kinderman. They're also both extremely engaging. Why this girl? It makes no sense. I I think the point is to make us despair. To see ourselves as animal and ugly. To reject the possibility that God could love us. But for me, it's Jason Miller who truly makes this movie work as well as it does during its thrilling conclusion. His father, Karis, a role that he was nominated for an Oscar for, is one of the greatest reluctant heroes in the history of cinema. His arc, while probably developed a bit slowly in the early part of the movie, as we watch his mother pass away, is just so damn compelling. It's basically about recapturing your faith while facing tragedy and pure evil. He's basically Mulder and Scully throughout the movie. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You ask me what I think is best for your daughter. He's playing all this pretty subtly, but you get the sense that it weighs more and more on him to the point where he finally realizes what he needs to do, leading to what is just a very cathartic, and satisfying moment of heroism at the very end, starting with that quiet exchange with Chris at the bottom of her staircase. Is it over? Is she gonna die? 
I mean, get away from her, you bitch! Happy trails, Hans. Why are you son of a... This is as good as any of those moments. One of the great endings in movie history. Come into me! God damn you! Take me! Take me! This brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Because music is essential to film. Wow, this has to be one of the easiest choices in the history of this category, as there can only be one piece of music. And that would, of course, be the debut single from British ambient musician Michael Oldfield. Now, it would actually not be released as a single until the following year in 1974, but that's because this song became a cultural phenomenon right alongside the movie at this time. It's a straightforward mix of synth and classic piano. Highly influential, as you could definitely experience the DNA of this theme for future horror scores, most notably, John Carpenter's theme for Halloween just five years later. You could hear it in that. We hear this music at three critical points in the movie. Early on when we see Chris walking through the streets of Georgetown on Halloween night, just a brief portion when we hear Reagan's doctors first raise the possibility of an exorcism just around the halfway point, and probably most memorably at the very end of the movie, post-exorcism and leading into the closing credits. When you think of The Exorcist, you are undoubtedly reminded of this song, and vice versa. I'm of course referring to Tubular Bells. This brings me to the next category, which would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, as I have done in the past with actors like Ray Liotta and James Caan, I'm going to take the rare opportunity to utilize this category to actually celebrate the recent loss of a brilliant artist. And that would, of course, be this film's director, William David Friedkin, who passed away just this past August at the age of 87, resulting from pneumonia and heart failure. Born in Chicago, as so many other great people are, Friedkin barely graduated high school. He didn't attend college, and his primary interest from a young age was the movies. His first real job at a school was actually working in broadcasting at WGN-TV, where he started in the mailroom and eventually honed his craft, becoming a director of TV documentaries. He would eventually parlay this directing career into feature films, and it was in 1971 that Friedkin became a celebrated phenomenon, directing the surprise box office smash and winning five Oscars, including Best Director for himself and Best Picture, the cop thriller The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman. Where do you want it? Huh? Where do you want it? Oh, shit. This side. Oh. I'm going to 
check on this address in the Bronx, and if they don't know you, they're at your ass. It was a groundbreaking film on many fronts, most notably for the extended car chase, which occurs in the middle of the film as Gene Hackman's Popeye Doyle is driving on crowded New York City streets in hot pursuit of a criminal who he's chasing, who's taking the subway. Yeah, damn impressive stuff. So how do you follow up such a big film? Why, with an even bigger film, of course. As I already stated, The Exorcist was a genuine phenomenon, and for good reason. Friedkin took the unique approach of filming such a fantastical, supernatural story in the more grounded manner that he would one of his medical documentaries, with the result being what is considered by many to be the, quote, scariest movie ever. And his documentary-like style would become a trademark for Friedkin from this point forward. The Exorcist also received Oscar attention as well, garnering 10 nominations, including Best Picture and once again Best Director for him. It would, of course, end up losing that year to The Sting, but needless to say, after two such enormously popular and highly acclaimed successes, Friedkin was the biggest director in the world at this point. And from this point on... Well, let's just say that despite directing several more excellent films, Friedkin's standing as a premier director flagged a bit, as his next film would be the notorious financial flop, but truly brilliant adventure, and previous episode here, Sorcerer, and likely remains my favorite Friedkin film overall. After the punishing response to that film, though, you could describe the remainder of Friedkin's career as a bit of a mixed bag with some definite highlights, as far as I'm concerned. In the 1980s and 90s, though, he would give us some highly watchable trash thrillers like Jade, ugh, David Caruso, and Cruising, Al Pacino, both giving all-time performances, but not in the way you would hope. But also some true standout genre films, including one of my personal favorites from the 1980s, the grim, violent, super-slick crime thriller To Live and Die in L.A. Definitely reviewing that one at some point. You broke your contract with me, Jeff. <sighs> No, I don't know whether you're into it. But you're going to have to suck on this until you give me back my paper. Oh, and one of the more underrated sports dramas of the 1990s, previous episode, Blue Chips. And honestly, right up until his passing this summer, Friedkin was still cranking out strong films fairly frequently, including the utterly batshit neo-noir drama from 2012, Killer Joe featuring a very memorable lead performance from Matthew McConaughey, and his career ending with the just-recently-released to-streaming adaptation of The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, starring Kiefer Sutherland. I just watched it, and it's pretty damn good, too. Over time, Friedkin garnered a reputation as an often tyrannical person on set, with some questionable antics that he pulled on some of his 70s films, which would just not fly today, and for good reason. Some of the stuff he would pull to rile up the actors playing the priests on this movie, just in particular, was pretty absurd. Regardless, the highs of his career remain genuine highs, and he remains one of the greatest directors of the modern era. Rest in peace, Billy. Your contributions to cinema will never be forgotten. He was not an actor. He was a priest. And it was four o'clock in the morning, and we were freezing. And he had to give the last rites to his friend who had just plunged from the top of a flight of steps. And the crew was there and freezing, and we did about 25, 30 takes, and he wasn't getting it, and he couldn't reach the emotional point. And I had read that other great directors had done that. John Ford, George Stevens just had done that. Whack. Yeah. And uh, I first asked, I took him by the shoulders, and I asked him if, if, he, if he loved me. And if he trusted me and he said, you know, I do, Bill, I said, OK. And I told the cameras to get ready and I hit him as hard as I could across the face. And I said, roll it. And he went right into the scene. The shock of it, the shock 
brought forth the tears, and afterwards he embraced me and thanked me. You can't pull that car too often, though, can you? No, I, 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 I've, I haven't done it more than 570 times. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, I'm probably going to go in a different direction here than most fans of this movie, so bear with me. Even though most of the antics and horrors that this demon puts Reagan through at the McNeil's Georgetown home are the meat of this story, for me, it's actually the examination and treatment which we watch Reagan endure in the first hour, which I find just as terrifying. The drab, cold, cramped room and bed that we see this young girl strapped into, all the orange dye that we see applied around her neck, the large needles, the cranking screw, that massive metal scanner that we see hovering around her, and the extremely loud and disturbing sounds that we hear emanating from this device as she is literally pinned underneath it. Hook up. That is the shit of nightmares, as far as I'm concerned. And apparently for audiences of the time, these sequences brought with them as much shock value as the supernatural stuff, as this was the first time a movie portrayed a realistic angiogram on screen. Yep. Just truly impressive filmmaking on Friedkin's part, along with stellar performances from the two main leads to really bring terror to this story on a more grounded level early on. And now for the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now back to that ending. It's a brutal, unflinching battle between good and evil, which is never presented to the audience in a condescending manner. With a strong assist by the also recently passed, unfortunately, DP Owen Roisman, RIP, Friedkin never lets us off the hook when it comes to feeling and hearing the bone-crunching sacrifice required to defeat this demon and to save this young girl. God, the son commands you. God, the Holy Spirit commands you. The mystery of the cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. And for me, it's that concluding 20 or so minutes which cement this film's greatness. You see, from a structural standpoint, the writer and director have done an excellent job of laying all the groundwork. By this point, we are invested with these characters and we believe what we're seeing. When we see that bed rising again, or the ceiling starting to crack, or that brief haunting silhouette shot of the demon Pazuzu in all of his glory, it does not feel like mere haunted house special effects trickery. It feels like an epic struggle by some well-meaning, otherwise unremarkable folks to eradicate this harsh entity which is threatening the life and well-being of this child. Every possible choice with regards to shot selection or dialogue keeps the focus on this one battle. And undoubtedly, this was the result of a great collaboration between an up-and-coming filmmaker and a brilliant horror writer who was tasked with adapting his published work for a completely different medium. As a result, William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty are your co-MVPs. It has been said that uh, the film The Exorcist has taken the more exploitive elements of the novel and left out maybe some of the meatier aspects. Do you Mm -hmm. want to comment on that? Sure. Who said that? First, let's, let's, let's talk about who said it. Okay, it has been said in some reviews. By who? Film critics. Which like, one? Okay, I don't have specifics with me, but that has been said. I have never heard that. Let's put it that way. The, my uh, attitude about the book was it was a great classic work of literature. 
I believe that the exorcist will be, the, the novel will be regarded years from now as the works of Edgar Allan Poe are regarded today. My rating for The Exorcist would be five stars out of five. Happy 50th anniversary to a genre-defining masterpiece, which actually transcends its genre. And if you're looking to watch The Exorcist, it is currently streaming on Max. And that ends another Possessed Review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.